in this episode. Yeah. yeah, and if Betty Crocker ever had a recipe for serial killer, I mean, he's got all the mixins. So, you know, <laughs> you got to do something to this guy. Uh, you're, you're in trouble, you know. 100%. Yeah. Welcome. You're listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, Episode 45, Transgressive Fiction, Mental Health, and Addiction with Tyler Jones. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Jeremiah Bannister. And I'm Chad Lutsky. And you are watching or listening to Paleo Cheese Podcast, part of Project Entertainment Network. And Chad, we have a very special guest today. We And we we talked about the idea that we were going to have a guest on our last episode. And if people haven't seen it, they've got to check it out. Friday the 13th, parts one and two, our favorite uh, kills in that and some background behind it. But we said that we had a really awesome guest and we hyped it up. But we didn't want to say who it was in case something happened and uh, nothing happened. So we have him today and uh, we're really excited about this, huh? Yeah. Well, actually, what happened was um, I I had just got done reading uh, this book, Criterion. And when I do that, I usually give books a shout out. And while I was doing that, I brought Tyler up and I just thought, I, I think what I said was, he was ridiculously passionate and that it would be, I would be hard pressed to find someone other than yourself, Jeremiah, who is as passionate as, as this guy was and that we had to have him on the show. And then um, soon after that, we reached out. And so today, tonight, whenever you're listening, we have uh, author Tyler Jones. He wrote Criterium, this book that I just held up. Hopefully you can see it. And uh, the dark side of the room as well as a few things that he has coming out soon, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, but Tyler also had a story in Burnt Tongues, which is an anthology edited by, edited by Chuck Palahniuk, and I wanted to ask him about that too. So Tyler, man, thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, My pleasure, my honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so since we were just talking about the Chuck Palahniuk thing, I did <clears> want to, I'm sure you've told this story uh, many times. I don't know that I've heard it. I've seen you on a couple of podcasts, but I did want to know uh, how that happened. And, I, and it seems like I heard something about maybe being part of a workshop with with Chuck. Yeah. So the the original, the, the anthology that you're talking about, Burnt Tongues, um, back in the day, um, he had a website called The Cult. I don't know if you guys remember that one. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was designed as a forum, a place for writers. So it eventually, the cult website eventually became Lit Reactor. Okay. So it had a it had a big forum and uh, a pretty vibrant community, like thousands of members who would write stories and post them and get feedback. And it had a really cool system where, so if we say the three of us were in the workshop, the mm-hmm. online workshop. Um, I would write a story. I would post it for review and Chad, if you wanted to post a story, you'd have to read my story and give some feedback and I'd vote on it. And then that would enable you to post a story. So you had to be involved to keep posting work. Mm -hmm. And um, this was going for a few years and I I wasn't too into the whole online workshop thing, but I decided I was getting into short story writing. I thought I'd give it a shot. And then uh, Chuck decided that he wanted to put together an anthology of the best stories 
from this online thing. So that, you know, there are a couple thousand people and it, we voted on them basically. Mm -hmm. So if you posted your story, Chad, and, uh, I, I liked it, then I would vote it up. You would vote mine up, Jeremiah's, et cetera, et cetera. And the top stories would rise. And then from those, Chuck and um, Dennis Widmeyer, who ran the site, who is now a film director, directed uh, Pet Cemetery, um, And uh, a couple other people would um, uh, select the what they thought were the best and put together an anthology. And somehow <laughs> one of my stories wow. ended up making it in there. Um, That's so, awesome. <laughs> yeah, which is really cool. Yeah. It's cool because the anthology... Uh, it's interesting to read it now because it it first came into being really early and it took years for it to get published. So by the time it actually came out, that story was like five, six years old. Mm. Um, and a lot of the stories in that anthology are pretty extreme. And so mine is like the tamest of them. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to see it in that context, yeah. you know. That was the kind of my next question was I was wondering if you had read the anthology and if if they were if these were if you think these were maybe picked because they kind of emulated Polonik's uh just like his transgressiveness or if they were kind of just more just straightforward or yeah that boy that's a good question i i think that some of it was the transgressive nature of it and i think I think by virtue of the fact that it was through his website, you had a lot of his fans there and yeah. we were all younger writers trying to find a voice. So you had a lot of people, I think, emulating his voice, mm. you know, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an, it's an interesting anthology. I think um, I've heard Chuck say that he he'd like to do another one at some point, but um I think if you enjoy Chuck's style and you like the transgressive fiction that he writes, I think you'll probably find a bunch of stories in there you like. Yeah. I I have I haven't read a full book of his. I started Haunted and I read um maybe a third of it so far or something. I mm -hmm. do like his um I, I do like the transgressive fiction. I'm not a fan of really of a like extreme horror, like yeah, yeah. gory for the sake of being gory. I like to watch it, you know, like eighties body horror films that are just like dead alive or something. They're just ridiculous. I, I like that, but to read it, I just get bored. I don't know if I'm jaded or, or yeah. what, but, but the something about the transgressive stuff talking, like some of the stories I've heard Chuck talk about, like I, I he told some on Joe Rogan and they're, they're, their own kind of horror. Yeah. And they're really disturbing. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. And, but there's something about that. And I don't know if it's, I think it's the unpredictable nature of it. Like, I mm -hmm. can't believe what I'm hearing. I can't believe what I'm reading right here. Um, maybe it's, it's, I'm jaded with the other stuff. Like, I was talking with my wife the other day and I told her, we were talking about, um, it was a scene I had written in a book. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, why don't, have, why don't you have this guy, um, this happened to him? And I said, because this, when someone gets shot, it usually doesn't happen like this. Just, mm -hmm. I said, there's sometimes where you just, um, everything is so commonplace. Like, and, and I brought up the beheadings in films. Mm -hmm. They are, I'm so desensitized. And I think most people are that when someone is decapitated in a film, it's unless it's like done like hereditary or something, it's really mm -hmm. not that big of a shocker. 
it's just like, oh yeah, they lost yeah. their head. Big, yeah, a person got their head cut off. What do you do? <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. not really, yeah, big deal. But some of this transgressive stuff um, is so is offensive in a different kind of uh, kind of a way. I think that Jack Ketchum does some of that stuff too. And we mm-hmm. read his, particularly in some of the short stories, you know, like there might be this couple that are in love and something and man, you just know that they're going to die. Yeah, <laughs> something yeah. really yeah. horrible is going to happen to them. And it's not about gore. It's just about, I don't know, watching something horrific happen after being yeah. arrested. Now, for, for people who may not know what transgressive fiction is. Cause I, cause I didn't know you guys were describing it. I'm like transgressive fiction. I'm like thinking, okay, what is this? I uh, looked it up, said a genre of literature, which focuses on characters who f- feel confined by the norms and expectations of society and who break free of those confines in unusual or illicit ways. Do you guys think that's legit? Is that a, a fair summation no. or is that, so Wikipedia is wrong. <laughs> I, I'm surprised. I'm not surprised. We yeah. have a better one in case people don't know. Because I, you know, I, this is a new a new term for me. I I tend to think of transgressive fiction, which is not something that I I write, but I think of it as people doing things that are breaking out of the confines. Like, eh, what does that mean? I think of it as people doing awful, terrible, strange things simply because they want to. If by confines, they mean like of a mundane life, you know, I I think of a transgressive story would be bored people deciding to torture animals and, you know, put it online. (laughs) Like that would be a transgressive story. Right. You're not necessarily breaking free of anything. They're just behaving in really horrible ways. I just read, um, I was asked for, uh, to do a blurb for a collection that's coming out and, um, there are some stuff in there that I thought were probably transgressive. And one, this might be, I don't know if Tyler, you probably know a lot more about this, this uh, subgenre or whatever than, than mm-hmm. I do. But th- this one story that I read in there, um, oh, man, it was such a great story. And uh, I'll just briefly, it was a basically a, a, a man taking his father where he had bought a graveyard plot. Mm-hmm. And he's very old. He's going to be dying soon. And um, the uh, as they're there overlooking, they have to do go on this big old long hike. It's way out of the way. Um, and they have like a guide with them and stuff that's taking them to this, this kind of private far off cemetery, like in the hills or somewhere. And while they're there, this, 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 the narrator is having this internal dialogue and you start to slowly find out that he's actually, and he's a grown man. He's mm. 30 or 40, something like that. He's in love with his dad. And mm. he, he wonders what life would have been like um, had they just met and, 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 not, and that wouldn't have been his dad. And, and then toward the end, he, he confesses to his dad and um, some other stuff happens. But to me, that was, that was kind of like, when I read that, I was like, because I, I, I can't define transgressive fiction I can, and I don't know that I can point it out, but I remember when I finished that story, I was like, I think this is transgressive fiction because mm. it was, it felt taboo. It felt yeah, like, yeah. but it also felt, it was, yeah, it felt taboo, but not in a, I don't know. It just, it's like I was watching somebody's 
confession that that I shouldn't be hearing maybe. Yeah. 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 And, uh, but it wasn't, it wasn't done in a grotesque manner. It wasn't Mm -hmm. done in like a sexual manner or anything like that, but it was just like, wow, that was, I haven't heard that before. Yeah. That is really, I think that that might be a better definition of transgressive than what I gave, because I think that that does tend to define that subgenre is is the taboo of people doing things confessing things that are out of the ordinary mm-hmm. and there's i think there's a spectrum of it as well it could be something like people torturing cats or it could be a confession that no one has ever known and it wouldn't be acceptable yeah like the, yeah, like think- the real life situation where that that guy was just killing cats for real and posting it online and people got outraged by it because people his neighbors mm-hmm. and stuff in his community. Uh, and he kind of went dark for a while, but then he started doing it again. And I, I, if I remember right, they went after him. <laughs> they did. There's, uh, yeah, a whole document- yeah. There's a whole documentary. You're the one, you're the one who told me about it, man. What's, what's Dude, it called? That documentary is amazing. And they just, yeah. this whole community goes Isn't it like, don't mess with cats or something. What's, what's it called? Don't, don't F with cats. Yeah. Don't F with cats. Yeah. Yeah. I was close. Yeah. <laughs> I was close. It's yeah. an amazing documentary. They do censor because the videos, you know, they do censor them. I mean, you kind of get the idea of what's going on, but, and he escalates further into this and posts these videos in this whole online community. Um, they end up being just like private investigators working together to find this guy. It's wow. crazy. I, I recommend watching it. Good for them. Yeah. They, a guy like that ends up being a serial killer a few years down the line. Yeah. Was was yeah. was the conversation in our video about serial killers? Or, or yes, because, yes, yeah, because it was. About, I was <laughs> yeah. talking about Netflix yeah. documentaries that I, yeah. that I had seen within the last year that were just phenomenal. And that yeah. was one of them. Yeah. yeah, and if Betty Crocker ever had a recipe for serial, serial killer, I mean, he's got all the mixins. So, you know, <laughs> you got to do something to this guy. Okay. You're, you're in trouble, you know. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I was wondering what your, uh, Tyler, what your, um, what your reason for, like, the genesis of your book Criterium was, like, what, what's the story behind um, why you wanted to write that? <clears throat> so it, it started... <laughs> It started with the idea of a character who finds a bike and steals it and then can't get off it. Some, some, for some supernatural reason, his hands refuse to the grips, his feet won't leave the pedals, and this bike is riding on its own. And originally, I thought it would be a funny story. I thought like this bike would be trying to kill this guy, running him into uh, you know fences and poles and parked cars and... Uh, it would be funny. Mm-hmm. And then I asked myself, okay, so who's the character and why would he steal the bike? He has to have a reason. And then the reason just kind of appeared partly because, um, so I, I work in healthcare and I'd seen a trend over the last or the few months before I started writing the book of, um, so I work in cardiac health. So I see patients, um, who are having various symptoms, you know, chest pain, racing heart, things like that. We'll put monitors on them, do EKGs, that kind of thing. And um, it's interesting because on average, a doctor spends about seven minutes with a patient and I spend 30 to 40 minutes with the patient. So I end up hearing a lot of things that the patient doesn't tell the doctor. And I know that because the patient will say, I never even mentioned this to my doctor. 
And I don't know what it is, just sometimes sitting with somebody and just asking, so what, what are you feeling? What's going on? And they start talking about their symptoms, but they're, they begin connecting their symptoms to things happening in their life as well. And they start fishing a little bit like, well, you know, my, my husband just died three months ago. Do you think that could be causing any of this? And I, and I often give patients a space to just open up and talk about it, you know, and get a better sense of what's going on in their life. And it helps me as a healthcare provider because then I'm able to determine, are we dealing with something really serious here? Or are there extenuating circumstances that are maybe causing stress? So it's just part of how I operate and talking with patients. So long story short, um, I started seeing a lot of patients um, admitting, confessing to being addicted to pain meds. And there was one guy in particular that he just seemed really um, weighed down by it. And as he told me his story, he was working construction and he'd fallen, he'd, he'd cracked his hip, which needed surgery. But in the meantime, they gave him some oxycodone to deal with the pain. Uh, he'd never tried anything before. So when he took these pills, it was like, whoa. Mm -hmm. And then he had surgery and then they gave him more oxycodone mm -hmm. for that. And he realized that it not only took away the pain from the hip, but the pain of being alive, you know, the stress of family and job and all that. And so he started telling his doctor that he was in pain, even though he was, the hip was healing mm -hmm. so that he could get more meds. Mm -hmm. And that's when it went off that, okay, maybe I have a problem. And I started see, I, it was just one of those things where like during a two week period of time, I saw like six or seven patients and they weren't who you'd expect either. Mm-hmm. And part of that is just the nature of prescription drugs. Anyone can get them. You, yeah. you, you don't have to go out on the street to score it, but it's, I mean, it's heroin. It's the same stuff. Like on a molecular level, it's not that different. Um, so that really got me thinking about who this character was who steals the bike. And I thought it's an addict. And once that locked into my brain, then I started, I had like this hyper awareness of the addictions of our culture. It is so prevalent in so many ways, um, which I'm sure we can dive into more. But that was the, that was the genesis of the story is that, okay, this, is, this isn't a funny story anymore. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even think of it as, as Chad, you and I were talking before we started recording as something allegorical initially. And it, that didn't really click for me until later, oddly enough. I mean, you know how it goes when you write, you've got the ideas yeah. and they're coming together and you're writing and it's not till you're way into the project that you realize, oh, the subconscious was, was doing something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, it is funny because then you look like some kind of genius that knew from the get go <laughs> what you were doing. <laughs> it just happened to, you just happened to stumble across that. I love that. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that Stephen King's uh, philosophy regarding like archetypes and symbolism that it comes after you've been excavating the story because he's talking about like you're digging the story out yeah. and it's, it's like a block yeah. and that you don't want to superimpose it you want to allow that thing to arise and once you do you might begin to see motifs and other things that begin to kind of flesh itself out but it's been there the whole time you yeah. know it's been because it's right. coming from you you know yeah and he talked about the importance yeah. of doing it that way rather than trying to build something around uh an agenda like like, like Birdemic, uh, the, the, the people, like the people who remade, like the people who remade Black Christmas. You know, it, yeah. It's, oh no, we've got yeah. this agenda. Let's let's 
remake Black, Black Christmas and uh, tell our own story using that. But anyway, um, you know, one of, yeah, one of I, my I, favorite quotes from an artist is uh, Michelangelo. Uh, he was, I can't remember what sculpture it was, but somebody asked him how, how did he sculpt like David or he did one of, I, I believe Michael, the archangel. And he mm -hmm. said, um, I saw, cause he starts with just a block of marble. And he mm -hmm. said, I saw the angel trapped in the marble and I just set him free. Hmm. Yeah. So you yeah. start That's with crazy. this, this, you know, this thing, this solid thing, and then shape it over time until it, it's something beautiful. And I don't know that you completely understand what it's going to be by the time you're finished with it until it's standing there in front of you. Yeah. And, and that's cool that I'm, I, I, like you were mentioning earlier, I, you know, you start out with a supernatural thing and it's so weird. Um, it didn't really become like, you know, when I was reading it, it wasn't a supernatural bike. It was, the bike was addiction itself traveling mm -hmm. down the same road as someone else that has already crashed before you mm -hmm. doing what you're doing. And, um, and by the time you hop on it too, it, it can't be stopped, which is, is the perfect parallel with, um, with addiction. So, yeah. Yeah. It, it, in that, in that, me. in that the path that he was following was that of his father. Right. Which we right. see, you see a lot in our culture. Right, which is, yeah. you know, it's weird. Um, I was I was just talking to, I think it was my son, my youngest son. He's 16. Just talking to him about, about stuff and how, about how, how some kids, it's sad because their, their, their road is kind of paved out for them already. Mm -hmm. Like if their parents are, are big partiers, you know, drinkers or, you know, doing drugs or whatever, and they have their kids and they raise their kids and they're still doing this. Um, there's a high probability that their child, despite the hell that they're going through and, and despite the, the hell that they see that their parents are going through, are going to stay on that road and follow that road, whether it yeah. be from, you know, uh, trying to mask uh, the, the scars that their parents left behind in their crappy childhood and, and using, you know, this stuff as a crutch or out of curiosity and then they get into it and it's too late by them, but then there's also some outliers and I've got some friends who, uh, a handful of friends, um, who became really successful, like went to college and got great careers, a couple of them are pharmacists and, but they grew up in dysfunctional homes where parents were alcoholics and drug addicts and they decided, uh, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. And I think it's so weird and I, you, that you would think that, you can, it, for the most part, you can look at parents who have children and look at the children and see them as they grow up and go. And because I've called it many times with people that that I've seen have kids, and know what their life is like. They don't stop, and now the mm -hmm. kids are, you know, in their twenties, and they're doing the same thing, they, yeah. and they have a horrible job, you know, constantly moving around and constantly moving jobs and stuff like that, and in bad relationship after another. And, um, but then you've got the outliers who can somehow say, I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just their, their DNA or I, I, I wish I knew the answer to where, um, like what, what makes that different where you've got the same kind of like upbringing yeah. with all of this, but the other person is rebelling against what their parents do. And 
and and the other one is the majority of them are going down the same path. Yeah, it's partly that you know nature the answer versus then, uh, nurture argument, isn't it? Yeah. Is yeah. it the nature yeah. of the child or is it how they were brought up? But then yeah. I think at a certain point, the law of averages takes over. Yeah. That if you have a nation as addicted as we are, and by all the stats that I've read, we consume more illicit drugs or illegal drugs. We consume more hard liquor. You know, we consume more prescription drugs than any other nation on earth. And we are yeah. the richest nation on earth. Yeah. So like that tells me that there is a, um, there's a deeper problem. So, but just by the law of averages, if you have that many addicts in an, that exist in a nation, um, some are going to make it out. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, they're outliers. Maybe that's the anomaly is that it's a wonder that any kids who are raised in homes like that make it out alive or make it out and end up rebelling against what they, what they were brought up with. Well, and it's, it's so many different addictions too. You know, I, before oh, saying anything about that, the idea of, of uh, nature nurture, you know, I, it's one of those things I enjoy reading about. I like Steven Pinker, his book blank slate mm -hmm. uh, talking about studies done on twins that were raised in wildly different places. Yeah. Didn't know of each other. Later, both of them like jazz, both of them were into the same kind of Thai food or something like really specific things mm -hmm. about both of them and said, look, there's a genetic idea to this. And also the impact of family versus the impact of your friends. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people, you know, more traditionally minded people say, you know, it's the it's the parents, it's their their influence. But I think that w parents are intuitively wise when they say you are who you're around. Mm -hmm. Because parents know that there's a truth to that, too. And part of that is what society you're in. You know, if you're if you're in a society that is addicted, not just to illicit drugs, but even just to amusement, mm -hmm. uh, just just to the, the pleasure of things, um, uh, immediate gratification, the concept of delayed gratification is practically non-existent yeah. <laughs> in, in yeah. any sphere of our life from things as mundane that are now finding their way onto charts regarding addiction to do with media consumption. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where there's places now, even in foreign countries where you're, you go through real programs, you live there for a while, you're cut off. And the idea is you don't go back. Mm -hmm. You don't, you don't go back to that or else you're going to fall right back into the, you know, tw 12 hours a day watching stuff. Um, you know, so whether, whether it's amusements uh, from a child, from being a kid, you know, th throwing somebody down in mm -hmm. front of a TV, and, yeah. the, and the way that that trains a child to enjoy something and want that immediate pleasure and not being willing to endure discomfort or suffering. There's, there's a value in suffering. Traditional minded people would say, you know, there's a, a, a blessing in carrying a cross. Mm -hmm. And and the modern mind says, yeah, screw that. Give me some Zoloft, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. give me some medicine. Give me, give me Percocet. Give me something. That's going to to fix this right now because I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, I am suffering. I don't like this. It. I don't. I'm. I'm a discontent of civilization around me. Mm -hmm. Um. And and I think that's why the further we've gone down that route, we found ourselves with a lot of people like Chad saying they're professional people. You would not think that they would find themselves in this predicament, but they endured suffering. And when, well, they didn't endure it, they experienced it and they, they did not wish to endure it. They didn't have a philosophy of suffering or even a philosophy of death. Mm -hmm. And to say, you know, in that situation, I, I want to 
have that go away, not understanding the cost that the price tag of that no free lunch with Percocet. And so it leads to all these other things. And so, yeah, particularly with um, prescription medication too, because you see that at least I see a lot of patients who think any, any medicine is, is the fix itself. And that's not, it's not the case. And that can be, that can lead to some serious disappointment. You know, if you think I have an issue, so whatever it is, whether it's high blood pressure or depression and, um, you prescribe a pill and that fixes the problem, particularly with like psychological, you know, uh, mental health issues. Um, it's not addressing the symptom or, I mean, it's addressing the symptoms, not the root cause. And you find people who are, you know, taking various medicines for years and years and years. And I, I, I wonder sometimes, are you, are you getting to the root of the problem? You know, I'm not saying that some people don't need that. I'm sure they do, but it, it makes you wonder, you know, like mm -hmm. if under any other circumstance, if you were coming to the doctor with knee pain year after year after year, like we need to get to the cause of that. We can't just keep treating it with medicine. We have to fix the, the source of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a society, we're really bad at diagnosing ourselves and whatever, whatever we're lacking spiritually or emotionally inside. Yeah. You like we, we're terrible at just filling these holes with, you know, whether it's entertainment or prescriptions or alcohol, you know, and it's amazing how many of those like we're okay with. You know, yeah. we just kind of joke around about it. Like, oh, I've been drinking every night, you know, for years and just to deal with the stress. And <laughs> I, my vices, you know, I, people see I'm vaping during the show. Right. Um, and also that I have a uh, coffee. My wife came in earlier and that's who came in the door. Uh, and you might hear my little baby Wolfgang comes by the door. He's beating on the window. Yeah. Wolfgang Phoenix, the most manly boy that's ever been born. Uh, came out with a battle axe and a beard, but the, the coffee thing, I mean, think of the excuses I make for myself. Like I'm so tired. Right. And I say, man, I'm really tired. I need my coffee. And if people say, well, when'd you go to bed? And I'm like, well, like midnight. And they're like, why? And I'm like, well, I was watching the walking dead. And they're like, yeah. Cause you know, Netflix is winning against sleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was in their memo. <laughs> They've admitted their number one competition in the world is sleep. And they very proudly stated to their internal people and we're winning <laughs> mm -hmm. against sleep. And and yet we we do that and we say, well, I need to fix it this way instead of saying, maybe I should close my eyes earlier. Maybe yeah. I maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I should exercise. Well, I'm not tired. I'm still awake. Well, have you been exercising? Well, no. No, I, I've been sitting down watching stuff, you know, or I doing guess, this. I get, I get in, in this, these uh, arguments with my wife sometimes. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'd call them arguments, discussions. Where, um, like my my youngest boy, he has ADHD. He was diagnosed with ADHD, and I come from the, you know, I don't know if you guys agree with me on this or not, but I don't really subscribe to the whole, um, let's fix it with a pill thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of things, uh, some some things do need to be fixed with a pill, but I, I also believe, uh, big time in lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. And you know, if someone tells me, for example, I'm really depressed and paranoid, well. I, I drink every night and I also smoke pot. And I was like, well, pot can make you paranoid and alcohol is a depressant. And, and they're like, well, yeah. And I don't, and I'm not eating well. And I was like, well, they're like, but I started taking Prozac and I feel better. 
I was yeah. like, yeah, but <laughs> what if you just made some lifestyle changes and not only would you feel better, you'd have that contentment mm. that comes along with kicking this problem, you know, ass on your own. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and, and having it be real, you know? So, um, we discuss sometimes about the ADHD thing and I'm like, you gotta understand, you know, she's like, well, you know, maybe medication or you just, and I was like, well, first of all, I'm not even sure that I believe in most of the diagnoses given for that condition mm -hmm. because of the world that we live in, because yeah. of what Jeremiah was talking about, instant gratification and the internet and the cell phones and stuff. I mean, how could you grow up in this day and age and not not feel like you had ADD or ADHD? You're torn in a hundred different directions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, even even me as I got older and I started, the internet came along and I and I I have so many hobbies and so many interests that if you are into movies and music and art as much as I do, I can spend all day, you mm -hmm. know, when's this band coming out with this album and oh look mm -hmm. at this artwork and how do you. How, how do you, you know, get jump on YouTube now? How do you do that watercolor technique? And then I'm over <laughs> here going, you know, listening or watching a writing podcast and all this. I'm just all over the place. And yeah. then, you know, uh, I was telling my wife, too, the other day about uh, music and how when I when I grew up, I'd spend 10 bucks on an album and I would nearly force myself to like it um, and give it 10 lessons before I really made up my mind because I spent money on it and I have this different appreciation for it where now I'm like, you know, here's a new album out. I listened to 30 seconds of the first song. I was like, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, ever listen to it again. Yeah. And so we debate on this stuff and I'm like, well, what about diet changes? You know, eliminating sugar and having him eat more brain food. Mm -hmm. What about um, forcing him away from some of this, you know, video game stuff and, and stuff on the phone. He's, he's not really a big phone guy, but video game stuff and, and having him uh, read more or pay, I bought him a bass guitar. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. having him do something that he can, um, you know, three months down the road, look and go, wow, I've, I've excelled in something, mm -hmm. you know, like the same way with um, working out. I remember when I was, I'm a skinny dude, but when I was even skinnier when I was a kid. And, and when I, I remember, um, a friend of mine got a weight set and he started working out. So I saved some money and I got a weight set and I started working mm. out. And over that summer, I noticed little, you know, my muscles looking different by mm. the end of it. And it was the first time that I can remember having like a, having something tangible that I could look at and go, I did this. This yeah. is, this is, whereas Nakota, my, my son who I'm talking about, he, you know, at the end of this three months, He's put in countless hours of video games with nothing to show for it, but mm -hmm. maybe, it, you know, be a little bit better at that. But if you were playing bass or something like that, it's like, wow, look at how much better I've gotten. Look at the song I wrote or look at these songs that I learned. Yeah, he doesn't. He hates playing the bass. He doesn't. So I don't know what the, where the answer lies, but uh, my wife and I definitely disagree with um, his diet, his diagnosis in the sense that um, uh, I, I believe that it's he's kind of a, uh, a product of his environment sure. and where, where I think she's more prone to think that this is some kind of chemical thing for him and mm -hmm. it needs to be fixed with medication. 
it's a complicated world to be a parent or a kid in these days. Yeah. yeah. Everything you're saying, the the distractions, they Mm -hmm. are innumerable and everywhere. And it takes effort now more than ever, I think to, to, to shut those things out and focus on artistic endeavors. Like you're talking about, whether it's bass or painting or even Mm -hmm. the importance of being bored. Yeah, I, I, I just wrote that down. That is. Yes, bring boredom back. It's sexy. It's good for you. <laughs> right? <laughs> bring boredom back because it is extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, as it, at the heart of innovation, creativity, you know, just being active. You, you know, my kids are a great example of this. They they'll they'll if I let them play, uh, and I violate what I know to be true regarding studies concerning how long kids should be on screen time before anxiety is increased and stuff like that. Um, if I allow them on, let's say three hours, four hours a day or something. Um, and I do that for a couple days in a row when they're done, not only will they be irritable and, you know, frustrating for me, but more than that, they'll say stupid things like, well, what else is there to do? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you live in a universe, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you live in a universe. There's a lot of things in this world. And yeah. I, I tell people, I just had somebody recently, because I've been diagnosed bipolar uh, since 2002 when I was in the Navy. And they, I've been on all different kinds of meds, and I've taken a different approach to this. I've st- tried to strike a golden mean, a balance on nature and nurture, you know, mm-hmm. uh, your environment and internal. And I said, uh, somebody told me, they said, you know, should I try this medication? Because they're going through really tough times. Uh, effects her is what they wanted. And I told them, I said, I, first of all, I am not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a guy who has tr- done that before. Um, and I have studied it and had experiences. And I said, this is all I would say to you. And I said, and I think that, you know, I've had some psychologists worth their salt who said the same thing to me and it was good. I said, you should not do that until, if you're like way out of control, like to the point you're way gone. I get that. It's a serious medical emergency. If, however, you're not and you're going through a hard time, I said, try these things. Every single thing I'm going to say is free. Breathe. Do Wim Hof. Do some kind of breathing exercise daily. I said, it takes 10 minutes and you're learning to breathe, to hold your breath. You have, uh, what is it, hermetic stress. Uh, Same thing with cold showers. Mm -hmm. Um, Hermetic stress that you are, and it's releasing your capillaries and other things. Mm -hmm. But saying those are, it's good for you because you don't want to do that. You don't want that feeling. You're scared to get in that shower. You'll make any excuse in the world. You'll smell like pig pen for a while because you'll make excuses. You just won't take a shower. But then you'll get in there and focus. Deal with it. Suck it up. Deal with it. And and when you do, you're teaching yourself in little ways, those little things that kind of trigger you and make you frustrated and you don't want to face them. You're doing it. No caffeine after two. Go to bed early. Wake up early. Start to be rhythmic with the sun and the moon right? Exercise three days a week. You don't have to do dramatic things. You can go out 20 minutes, but make yourself breathe heavy, right? Like make yourself do push-ups a lot or something. Get your, get worn out for a minute. Go outside in the sun, right? Be in the sun. Try to eliminate things like extra added sugars, Mm -hmm. limit screen time, and just be quiet. Just rather than being, if you're in a car driving, sometimes don't put on music. Just be quiet by yourself, you know, close your eyes, man, for 10 minutes a day. Just, just 
be there in that moment and just try not to even think about stuff. Now, I'm not saying empty your mind. I'm saying don't just go in every direction. Yeah. You know, and these things, everything I mention is entirely free. Every single thing. Speaking of sun, I'm going to close this curtain real quick. <laughs> yeah. No, you're good. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's one of those things, man, where I had somebody, I had somebody bring that up and I, I told them this and I can't even tell you how many times I've had this conversation with people where they reach out to me, right? A lot. And I tell them, I say, these are things I do. These are things that I do. Cause they're like, well, how are you functioning? You know, cause I've, I've been in a clinic twice, yeah. right? Um, a, a, two weeks at one occasion and one week at another one. And I've been on a wild array of medications, including, by the way, ones you mentioned earlier about painkillers mm -hmm. and in how I became dependent upon them. And it's a little trick that they say it's not addiction, it's dependency. And I say, yeah, it's kind of the same thing a little, <laughs> um, you know, in, for the person, because you wake up in the morning. And the first thing you're thinking is I need my Vicodin right now. Like that's the right away. Boom. First thing, mm -hmm. first thought. And that's how you start your day. You're not praying. You're not meditating. You're not getting up and doing pull-ups or something. You're not going outside and looking at the sunrise and breathing. You're not doing any of that. You are saying, where is my Vicodin? Mm. And if you don't have it, like I, I've had people who stole mine before. I, I knew people who had real problems with this and they stole my stuff. And you can't, I knew I can't call the doctor and say, hey, somebody stole my stuff. Give me more. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. And so I, I said I had to I had to wean fast and I had to deal with day like two weeks of no meds. I mean, they took a lot because they were taking mm -hmm. popping like 10 at a time. So I'm I'm sitting there and getting in hot shot, hot baths, cranking it as hot as I can. I'm eating potassium like crazy. I'm walking. I'm trying to breathe and do anything I can. Waking up in the middle of the night with one arm flexed. As, I thought I was having a seizure. Because I woke up, my arm was completely tight. My leg was up in the air, completely tight, pointed. But my other side was not. And I, I'm looking and I'm like, what am I doing? And it was so uncomfortable. My body was just uncomfortable. And I, so I would walk outside. I'd go in the middle of the night and I'd walk for like three hours just in the middle of the night. I'd go up to a gazebo in the middle of the town and sit there and I would write uh, poetry and stuff um, to try to deal, man. And mm -hmm. But so many people who they hear that and they don't even want to try. I said, just try a couple of them. Try a couple of them. You know, yeah. you try just try watching 60 to 90 minutes on a phone or a TV in a day and try no caffeine after two. Or if that's too hard, you know, try a cold shower a couple times a week, something do or just be quiet for 20 minutes. And a week later, yeah, I just got some effects. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then they're getting brain zaps and they're like, bah! and they're like, what's this feeling? I'm having nightmares and I'm eating people and stuff. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you wouldn't be having that if you would do what I, you know, this is free. This is nature. This is normal human activity. Yeah. And, yeah. But it's hard, man. And people, but that each one of those things requires you to do something. Mm. And that's, it's hard, man. In in today's society like you were saying how do people even grow up in this yeah. you know it's hard well it's not only busy and frantic i think that there's a lot of what it a, a byproduct of all the distractions and all the things is that by its very nature it's selfish it's self-centered it's entertain me this these are things i like even all the things like you mentioned chad the distractions they're all none of them are bad 
in their nature, but they are all things that you are pursuing for you. And I have the same things. I mean, it's, it's actually a lot of the same things that you have, like music, books, movies, all that kind of stuff, whatever I'm interested in, but it's all self-serving. And then you add social media into the mix as well. Yeah. And it all becomes this really twisted version of self. And I, I think we've all noticed over the last few years that there's been a really, there's been a rise in this um, idea of self-love, self-care. And mm-hmm. like it's, it's one of those ideas that I think is, is positive to an extent, mm-hmm. but not if it's not balanced with some acts of selflessness. If everything that we do is self-focused, like to your list, Jeremiah, I would say, and I, I had a friend who, um, still a friend, um, has some, some, some of the most severe depression that I've, I've seen. And um, my, I encourage some of the same things. Exercise, man. I mean, I'm yeah. not saying don't ever take meds. I think right. if you need them, you need them. But let's maybe it should be for a period of time while you do things to also dig yourself out of this hole. Um, and to that, I added, I highly encourage you do something for someone else that is selfless and commit to it. Like whether that's being a big brother, you know, find a grade school kid that doesn't have a dad and take him out to lunch twice a week, invest in some pour out of yourself and give to someone else because it's really hard to, to think of your, uh, I was a big brother years and years ago and I, it it was when I was in high school and it was at a time where, you know, you're angsty teenager and everything happening in your life is really extreme and just awful. And I thought I had problems. And then I, um, my mom encouraged me to become a big brother and it was a, um, remarkable experience because I got teamed up with this kid who just had just a shitty life. And I got to sit down with him and have lunch and listen to his problems. And it, just made everything that I was going through seem insignificant. Not that I didn't have things, but it put them in perspective. And that perspective was so valuable. And by the time we were done with lunch, man, my heart was breaking for this kid, not for me. And I think that's, that is a, um, a useful exercise for all of us is to focus on other people mm-hmm. for it, a lot. <laughs> yeah. I do. Too. I, yeah, I think that's, I think that's great advice. And that does, um, in, in turn, honestly, it, it's doing a lot more for you than you might think it is. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. not, not to give you bragging rights, but just, uh, giving feels good. It does, and, man. And there's, I, I almost think of it like you've heard the, the, the old saying about forgiveness, that forgiveness is setting a prisoner free only to find out the prisoner was you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the same is true about selflessness is it may be like you, you're saying it, it, it does feel good and we get something out of it, but that's just a, that's just a benefit of yeah. loving our fellow humans. Yeah. Yeah. There's a benefit. To, there's a benefit to you for doing something selflessly good for another person. Yeah. And we all know, you know that inherently yeah, like inherently. Christmas is awesome. When you give someone a gift that you, you know, they're going to appreciate, we get and, that. And you don't know it until that happens. Like I, yeah. I you know, my, my whole childhood, I was just so, <clears throat> excuse me, excited about Christmas because I would get all these gifts. And then when I became an adult and I had a job and I, the first time I remember buying like, you know, my siblings and, and uh, my parents and stuff, uh, presents after I didn't live there anymore, 
um, I, I wasn't expecting how much fun that was. And, yeah. and ever since then, that's the best part, man, is, mm-hmm. is giving them something. And I hadn't, I had no idea. Yeah. But and I, even yeah. just being there for somebody, you know, like yeah. we don't, we don't give ourselves time and space to even be there physically for a person. Um, you know, and I, and I think, uh, I'm glad you brought that up about doing stuff for other people. Cause that list is a list that I've given to numerous people. And again, just to stress, like you did, people may need meds. I'm not against medication. I I've taken them. I still take some, but I say, you really do need to do these other things. But a lot of times with those, with the, with the things that make doing that list so difficult, um, those habits in our lives, um, those addictions, in fact, in our lives that, that we shroud with <laughs> certain language, mm-hmm. we, we kind of swaddle it with certain language that makes it acceptable to ourselves, mm-hmm. self-excusing. That because we do that, we don't have the time or space or even the desire really anymore to say, well, I'm going to go and just sit with somebody. I'm just going to go talk to them at their house. I'm going to have a party at mine. And instead of getting online and, and talking to somebody, and I'm not saying that's not a value, but, but saying that there's something different about, let's say, walking outside with somebody mm-hmm. and having the wind in your face, you know, the sun on your shoulders and stuff. Yeah. And, and hearing the wind through the, through the leaves and everything as you're talking about life and stuff you're going through. Um, so I, we even set up times where we're able to have my buddy. He's got, he's really into like tea sets and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he's got a super fancy tea collection and he always has all these guys over. It's kind of a funny thing. You know, we all, <laughs> we all get together and we have a tea party and it's awesome. Uh, we talk, you know, politics and religion and economics and culture and all that stuff. Yeah. And, and, but we're face to face. We're, we're together. We, we do w- once a year, we read a book called the four men. Uh, by Hillary Belloc and we read it and it's about a guy on a journey and nostalgia and looking forward and it's a really cool mm-hmm. book and we get together and we sing the songs in the book he wrote there's songs in there and we <laughs> sing them and we drink beer and have bread and cheese and bacon and stuff like that and we we do our thing smoke cigars and pipe with each other and so like those are things that really stand out to me but also like you're saying do you think though that it, it's hard when you say when you bring up Big Brother, for example, you know I, I hear this. Uh, I'll use a comparison. I hear this with people when they say they go on a missions trip. Like my mom recently went and helped. I think I think it was constructing an orphanage down in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hear a lot of times in in our modern society when people talk about stuff like that, they say, "Oh, well, you're a you're a first world person going there, and you're coming back and just feeling bad for yourself." And you're saying, I'm learning a lesson. Like when you said, I learned that my life isn't quite so bad, you know, that, that mm-hmm. some of the, some of my problems might in fact be first world problems, you know, and that yeah. maybe there are others yeah. even in first world that have the same problems I do that I didn't realize, but you're seeing it through a redemptive lens that there's some value to learn from that mm-hmm. and to walk away from, to be, not only did you better the situation, not only were you there for another person, but through that experience, you're seeing faults and weaknesses of your own to make your, your own life even better. And yet so many people will shoot that down. Um, you know, it, it, at least in my experience with like yeah. religion and, and missionary work and stuff yeah. where yeah. they treat it that way or adoption of kids from foreign countries who have it really rough. And they, you know, the way they treat them uh, as white messiahs or whatever. And it's just, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, yeah. yeah, but it doesn't... And it, it doesn't change the reality of how useful those experiences can be. 
I, you know, I, I think anybody can shoot anything down. I, <laughs> there's a lot of experts out there online just constantly shooting down anything that, <laughs> you know, is good. Um, in those experiences, they, they offer perspective and that is what is, seems to be, I mean, from my, from my place missing from, from a lot of our lives is we have no greater awareness of what's around or we do, but in a peripheral sort of way, like, ah, I know people have it worse than I do, but then back to focusing on my problems. Mm-hmm. And, and I, one thing I love about speaking of addiction, one thing I love about addicts, um, if you, either of you guys ever been to an AA meeting? <laughs> Several hundred. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I've, I've been to a couple. Yeah. So that's right, Chad, you, you former alcoholic. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, you know, better than I, what I love about for former addicts or recovering addicts is they are some of the most honest people you will ever meet mm-hmm. because there's this hard one self-awareness yeah. of there's darkness in me. I have the capacity to do things and become things I never even thought I could. And with that comes this, this self-awareness that is so valuable. And with that comes perspective. And I love that. I love that honesty. And it seems that we are now more than ever a society of um, ignoring what's in us and putting up some kind of front or projecting a version of ourselves to the world that is dishonest. Mm -hmm. I'm better. Everything's better than it actually is. Let me post pictures of my life looking better than it actually is. Yeah. I want you all to think that everything is great and fine or yeah. when it's not, it's, it's something that I'm going to address in a brave and courageous way. When in reality, you know, so many people are just hurting and breaking and falling apart inside because things are not the way that they want them to be. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to, you know, we're talking self-love, self-care, selflessness, I think there has to be some self-awareness too. I think a lot of addiction stems from a lack of self-awareness. The ability to say, um, I've been hurt. I was, you know, say abused by my dad and I've carried that inside. It's turned into this, this bitterness in me and it's got nowhere else to go. I don't know what to do with it. And when I drink, you know what? I feel better. Okay. I can actually sleep at night. Or it doesn't quite the, the the pain isn't quite as sharp, and until you address that thing, that you know what I've been wounded, and this is an open wound. It's not healing. I need to work on that. I need to work on me in some way and fix that. Uh, until we have that self awareness, that it's it's hard for people to heal. I think, and then that that is like step, you know, one or two on the road potentially to addiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, you know, it's weird that you bring that up because the the whole self-awareness thing, because, um, as you mentioned, I, yeah, I'm recovering alcoholic and I went through drug and alcohol rehab when Mm -hmm. in my late teens, I started really early, like 12. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I was almost 20, I was done with, with drugs. Like I haven't even, so much as smoked a joint since since like 1988 1989 something like that good for you um, man. The, the drinking is a little bit different story it was mm-hmm. always my drug of choice yeah. and um uh you know i i i was on and off that um you know a year sober here 
and then going back out for six months, a year sober there, uh, getting 10 years of sobriety and then trying to be a, a usual drinker, which <laughs> it, it was fine. I'm, I've never been a violent drunk. I've never been uh, the belligerent type. Um, even when my, my oldest, my daughter, she even actually, when I was trying to be a casual drinker that, that turned into like a six pack, um, every other night thing by myself, not as a show, social thing. Um, but she actually liked, um, thought I was nicer when I, when I was drinking <laughs> and I was never like stumbling around or anything like that. Or yeah, but it was a personal conviction for me. I knew it wasn't healthy, uh, for me, uh, you know, emotionally or spiritually or uh, just health wise or for the message that it was sending to my kids, you know, mm-hmm. that, I'm not with friends. I'm sitting here. And at the end of the night, I have between six to eight beers sitting around me. And this mm. isn't what you're supposed to be doing. I mean, I, 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 I envy those who can buy a six pack and put it in their fridge and it's still there a week later and they just get home from work and they grab one or two, mm. you know, I've just never been like that. I, I, um, I hope to. I I still actually have hopes that maybe one day I can be. I mean, I, I'm drawn to the idea of home brewing, and <laughs> now they have all these crazy beers and stuff. Where I was, I was just like, "What's the cheapest beer?" Mm-hmm. You know, oh, Goebbels. Okay, it's only you know, <laughs> yeah, the Daddy Ice <laughs> guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> right. But but you know, again, not not a. Uh, and when I look back at it, when I was going through treatment, um, I. You know, I was it was a court order type of thing, mm. and because I had gotten into some trouble, and it was like you can either stay here incarcerated or you can go to this forty-five day program. Well, in hindsight, when you compare my uh, drug use and my drinking to what we have today, it was child's play because mm. it's like you know it was mostly just a lot of weed, a lot of mm. drinking, you know, pills here and there, a little bit of coke, but it wasn't you know you know, meth and heroin and crack and all that kind of stuff. It was, mm. it was more like, I, I see these kids that party nowadays. And I think of the ones, you know, when we were partying in the eighties, it was more of a, Oh, this feels good. Let's, let's party and have a good time and laugh and make fools of mm. ourselves. Now it's like, I need this to get by because mm. I hate myself and I hate my life. Yeah. And, and then that quickly moves from, you know, smoking a joint to, to uh, oftentimes to, other stuff and then you know we've talked a lot about the the prescription thing which is really unfortunate because you know a kid gets a tooth infection or you know breaks his ankle playing football and stuff and doesn't realize this is a lot for a lot of these kids this is the beginning of a lifelong addiction for them Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. by having you know if they have an, an addictive personality but um and and when i went through treatment i couldn't believe what I learned in there. And it was the best experience of my entire life. And still like use that kind of use that type of stuff. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful. And in, I am self-aware, I think sometimes almost to a fault, like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, you know, a lot of self-condemning and, and things. And, and I, I, I take issue with, <clears throat> with people who aren't self-aware or particularly people who don't take inventory. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that. And I, I'm super like hyper empathetic and, and maybe it is from, you know, AA meetings mm-hmm. in, in, in learning and everything that you said. I've always 
tried to put my finger on it and been like, you know, like when we were going through the election year and you had the right hating the left and left hating the right mm-hmm. and then people hating Trump as a human being and wanting to you know, him to literally die, mm-hmm. not being a, a fan of Trump, but being a fan of humanity and not understanding how somebody can. And I'm like, are you serious? You really want this person like bad things for this person? <laughs> and I, I just didn't, I couldn't get behind it. I, I didn't, I don't understand the mentality. And Trump was just a, a one example. And I only bring it up because it's, it's over with, but yeah, like that yeah. kind of thing, I see it on Twitter all the time. And it's like, you know, if you see some author make a, a, a stupid mistake in his choice of words or whatever, mm-hmm. these, some of these people want this person dead. And I'm like, I've said worse than that person just said. Mm-hmm. So have you many times. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, why are we, why are so many, It it's something that bothers me more than anything as far as social media is. Well, it's, that, and, it's that self-awareness, right? Yeah. That, that ability to say, oh, well, I'm not, I'm not going to throw the first stone. Yeah. <laughs> Because I've, like you said, I've, I've said or thought the same things, but it, it, it connects back to that selfishness as well. That if you are the one attacking on social media, there is going to be a group of people in support of your attack. So you get the rush of being yeah. on the right. The validation. Yeah. 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 And it's just, it's a really twist. It's like the snake eating its tail. You know, where does, where does one end and the other begin? It's just this endless cycle that we've created. It's just, <laughs> madness it's all yeah. madness well and you guys mentioned phrases like you know cast the you know he without sin cast the first stone right mm-hmm. um or forgiveness um where those concepts came from in modern times is toast people are people have walked away people they are there used to be you know and i i don't ever want to think that you know america was like just this every single person was you know on their knees in the morning and doing uh meal prayer before and after their meals and always going to church and everybody's just that's yeah, fake um however there was still kind of a social expectation uh there was still a social norm right that that said that was rooted in ideas that came from that so that if somebody did fall or if somebody was an addict or somebody did have a problem with something or they made a mistake that we saw ourselves in that because we saw ourselves as sinners in need of a savior. We saw ourselves as sinners needing forgiveness, as sinners who needed to repent. Um, and we, those terms were not offensive. We didn't co- consider them old fashioned or out of date or, you know, anything like that um, or ignorant or wrong. I mean, nowadays a lot of people just say, well, that's just crazy. And, and you say, well, Look at the loss of this and where we are. <laughs> and I don't want to get too religious on people because we don't talk very much about it on the show. But but it's important, I think, because, you know, even in talking about AA, they say, look, even if it's not Jesus, you've got some divine thing in your life that's going to help you through this, you know, that that you need to have that. Something, and even as something bigger than you, something bigger than higher, you, higher power, yeah. yeah, yeah, higher power, something bigger than you, because they understand the value of transcendent. And, and and the the troubles that happen when a person, uh, much less an entire society, accepts an imminent frame that everything is imminent, everything is here, everything is now. There's nothing above and beyond me. And you know, you mentioned the self, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, but the there's a documentary called The Century of Self, 
And it's about Sigmund Freud and about his nephew, Edward Bernays, um, and the, the whole movement of public relations and, you know, uh, marketing and advertisement and how to get people to do certain things that have to do even with pleasure and his concept of taking his uncle's beliefs and saying, it's all about pleasure. If, if you can make it so that that person, rather than giving the information about it, you wrap it up in a story that they can identify with. That's like a parable that makes them feel good. You know, like like toothpaste commercials of a guy or deodorant commercials of a guy at a dance club. And there's some girls by him and little stinky smells come up and they're like, Ugh, and they walk away and he's depressed. And then he goes home and it's got the montage music as he's wiping the deodorant. And he goes back and he, next thing you know, he's got the ladies, you know, bumping mm -hmm. up on him and he's smiling and it shows the, the thing and says, you know, it, it's this deodorant and that's what it did. Well, mm -hmm. it taps into this thing that says, well, I want that. I, I'm sad because I don't have that. I fear that. Mm -hmm. And and so it's a, it's a fantastic documentary. It's long. It's like four hours long. It's a series. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a really good one. But I, I wanted to ask you because I before we run out of time, because, you, you know, we've been together for about an hour a little bit more than that um so but i wanted to ask you um situations man where like there, there's a there's a documentary done by i think vice did a documentary uh about different documentaries about drugs mm -hmm. and they they cover this one drug and i think they were in russia if i remember right in places that are just devastated i mean you, mm -hmm. I, I don't know anywhere in america that looks like that Right. Like that's another level. Um, and there's these people, there, are just needles everywhere on the ground and they're doing this drug called crocodile and they make it out of, you know, paint thinner and other stuff. And they used to be heroin addicts and they say this is even better, but it, it literally is eating their skin. It yeah. eats their muscle. They have holes in their body. They look like zombies. And they, the documentarian would ask them, say, you know, why? Why are you doing this? I mean, you're literally watching as your as your arm is. You can see your muscle and bone. Like, why why are you doing that? And they say, well, you're going to die some way. Mm. You know, I, I'm I'm either going to die from this or I'm going to die trying to get it, kind of thing. What do we do in situations like that? Like, what are you know when you've ever confronted those? How have you dealt with that in in dealing with people where a lot of individuals would just say, well, it's a lost cause. You just got to let let the person go um, without wanting to be too controlling and saying, I'm not going to let it go. I'm just going to just control this person. But saying, how, how do you balance that to say, you know, to keep hope alive for that person? Um, and yet at the same time, recognize that this person is so entrenched, they've they've turned themselves over in a way. Mm -hmm. um, how do we how do we maintain hope? And wh what are things that you that you think would be even wise or prudent? Or helpful to do teach us Tyler <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah well um, so in my I, I've worked in healthcare for 25 years now and I've met a lot of people in a variety of different situations and I've I've seen I've seen a few in you know not not skin and muscle falling off but in severe situations where like repeat, repeat visitors to the hospital, you know, repeat overdoses. Uh, and some are determined, like I'm, I'm going to die and this is how I'm going to die. 
So as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go right back to doing it again. And I've, I've had the opportunity to have some conversations with those people. And um, the first thing, I mean, in answer to your question, is to not focus on the addiction itself, because I don't think that's the problem. That's a symptom of the problem. So asking questions about this person and what's going on in their life, like digging down and listening, because I don't think a lot of people, and I've overheard some of the therapy sessions that take place in the hospital too, like on the behavioral health ward, you know, and, and I don't know, I'm sure it's useful for some people, but there, there are others where I, I sense that it's not very useful, that they need somebody to just ask, something is eating you up. What is it? What's, what's going on? You know, when did it start? Why, why do you remember why, you know, and get them thinking about how they got on this path. Cause they're so far down the road that I, I don't think it's very often they've been asked to turn around and look back and see when did you first get on it and why Like you're trying to fix something, but what you're doing isn't working. So how do, you know, how do we, how can we even address the, the, the addiction until we understand why? Mm -hmm. I just think that's so important. I think that people get to the root of it. Yeah. yeah they're so complex, man. And, and we're, we are, we are deep, complicated people. And it seems like, I don't know, we're just constantly addressing the surface of things constantly. And that's not where any of the problems are ever. And even like what you were talking about, Chad, with people, you know, I wish so-and-so would die or wishing ill on others. It's like every time somebody, to me anyway, speaks like that, they, it's like it's almost like they're just tearing open their chest and saying, hey, look at the ugly in me. Mm -hmm. It's there. I can't see it myself, but you all can see it now. Yeah. You know? Like we, you got to address this stuff. We, we have to address this stuff. I have to address it in me, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. otherwise I'm not going to have a marriage or a job or a family. If I, if I constantly push this stuff down and I think that's what, I don't know. It seems like our society is, is, um, rewards that like everything's fine. You're okay. Yeah, you or, even, or even you celebrate them. not being okay. That's the other, the, yeah. like the other end of the spectrum is to celebrate not being. I've got all these problems. Yep. Yep. I, I don't know. That's what I, I was going <laughs> to say. I hope that answers your question. That. Well, it reminds me. Yeah, it, it reminds me of um, of the mythology, right? The, the archetypes and the symbolism and mythology of looking into an abyss, right? And and the hero's journey of of fighting the dragon and realizing the dragon is you right and that you have to be able to to go on that journey to be willing to die right to say i i am i have to face this thing i'm going to face down this monster i'm going to pull a beowulf i'm going to fight this thing and i'm going to realize at the end that it's me and that that darkness that i'm looking into is the darkness of me and that um, in conquering this, you, it can either devour you, the flames can surround you, leave you scorched, and you're done. Or you can conquer this thing. And in conquering it, you're the master of two worlds. You walk away, uh, not perfect. You're, you don't walk away and say, I'm, I will never be. <laughs> you have scars. You have battle scars, right? Yeah. You have fears that may come up from having gone through that journey that, that stick with you. And, but yet at the same time, the value of having found yourself in that abyss and having slayed that self in the dragon 
um, yeah. is you, you of a redemptive up, quality. Yeah. You brought up Freud a little, a bit earlier in regards to that documentary. And I think I, I went through a period of time where I was just absolutely fascinated with bo- both Freud and Jung. Yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely more of a Jung man. Yeah. I think, I think that Freud's philosophy and a lot, I'm simplifying it, but his, the general philosophy as I understand it, and I've, I've read a significant amount of his work was um, we are basically the sum of everything that's happened to us that we don't have much of a choice in who we become because it's, it's circumstantial. It's nature versus nurture. You are where you are. You can't choose your parents. You know, you can't choose who dies and who abuses you. Like you are just the, the culmination of all the events in your life over which you have no control. Jung took the position of, no, I am not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. And which seems to be a, a far wiser way to live life mm-hmm. is because it, we take some, some ownership in who we become, which means that who we are, if we don't like it, it is the result of our choices. And that means we can then make choices to become better. So it, it requires our participation, whereas Freud's view of things is very passive. Like, yeah, oh, just came, you, know, yeah, you got just a accept, shitty hand. Yeah. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah, good good luck or just, or just accept by caving, accept by allowing that appetite, you know, share your bed with your mama. <laughs> like, I'm serious. Yeah, seriously. Like, you know, oh, you're discontent to civilization. I understand it. It's Oedipus complex. Go, go and rock that marriage bed with your mom. So like, or do drugs, you know, do, do what you desire. Do those urges. Yeah. Um, well, like we were talking about earlier in regards to criterium with the, the kid following his dad's footsteps, that was something I was going to mention that I forgot is that that's something that you see a lot is that the failure of the parents um, can in some ways shape the failures of the child in a psychological way where they, it's almost like um, they're riding a bike and there's a tree up ahead and, and they can totally avoid it. But they think, well, the last time I rode my bike, I hit that tree. So there, there's no way I'm going to avoid it this time. And sure enough, you start slowly going into the tree, you know, like they, right. they psychologically think, well, because dad was an alcoholic, I'm going to be an alcoholic. Oh, yep. Right. Sure enough. Here I go. Just mm-hmm. like I knew I would. For, uh, Jung, Carl Jung has this phenomenal quote. It's one of my favorites of all time. He says, until we make the unconscious conscious, mm-hmm. it will direct our lives and we will call it fate. Yeah. I, I think it is the mo- yeah. one of the most insightful, yeah. brilliant things that has ever been said about the human condition. That until we take what is in us and realize we, we have to be aware of it, be honest about it. Like we were talking about the honesty of addicts. That's what I love. I love that when people are like, yep, recovering alcoholic, I can't drink. No big deal. You guys go for it. But I... I have a friend, I went to a party at his house and uh, they had a bunch of alcohol out. And at the end of the, the, it's a Christmas party. He was like, okay, I need everyone to take the bottles home because I have a problem. <laughs> so I need this to go. Yeah. And I love it. Cause he just put it out there. You know, it wasn't like this weird secretive thing. It was just, yeah, I got an issue. And I'm, I've, I've been a recovering alcoholic for seven years and, and you know, here we go get rid of the bottles. And I love that honesty. So he's made the unconscious conscious. He is aware of what he has the capacity to become and he's taken efforts to fix that. And it's a sad thing when you see lives just, just careening all over the place and you can see clearly why, but they seem to have no idea. And I think that is the, like the root of all those problems 
So I, I subscribe to a more Jungian view yeah. of things yeah. than, than Freud because I'm always I always think that we have a shot that humans are always redeemable no no matter how far you know but but they have to want you have to want to you can't I still like reading Freud but I'm with you on Jung yeah 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 he's a I brilliant guess. brilliant thinker yeah so this is this is why I chose this topic when we're going to have Tyler on because I wanted to draw this, all this intellectual stuff out of Tyler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. But yeah, but man, we can go young all night. <laughs> yeah. But it, another reason was because, um, yeah, I had just written criterium by Tyler. And if you want to read a cool, uh, allegory about drug addiction and th this would be a good book. Also, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to promote my home book, man. Do it. Uh, if, if you want, if you want to read just a somber thing where some kid thinks that he can try yes. heroin just once, then mm. I have a novella called Wallflower. It's a great book. And it's yeah. thank you. It's so weird. I have gotten so many comments about, um, uh, you know, I, I get different comments about different books that, mm -hmm. that kind of like, uh, say sort of the same thing, but with Wallflower, man, so many people have said um, it needs to be taught in schools or and I don't know about yeah. that, but like they yeah. need to give this to high schooler students. And it's like, I, I don't see it like that, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, it's I, good. I, no, man, I, I yeah. get it. That's like, it's tapping yeah. into, I've had the same thing with Criterion, man, messages that like really mean a lot to me, letters from people yeah. reaching out and it, you know, they don't do it publicly, which I love even more. Yeah. They're like this is my story or it was my story or whatever, or this is the story of my son or someone I know and love. Mm -hmm. um, it's like you, you, we're tapping into something that is real. That's out there that I don't, I don't know is being addressed enough. You know, I don't know that yeah. enough people are willing to say like, we are a culture of addicts. Mm -hmm. We foster it. We support it. We celebrate it. And we, we make it okay, which yeah. is just the craziest thing to me. But, um, when we, when you address that for what it is, not some polished, shiny version of it, you know, that, that people may put online, like here I am again with a, with a drink in my hand because I'm relaxing and this is what I do. Um, once you address the, the, the insidious nature of it, I think that people instinctively know that, like they know that, that certain behaviors are not healthy and, kind of lost my train of thought but you get what i'm saying like yeah. it's 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 yeah. addressing what's out there yeah and we all know it's out there mm -hmm. but it's it's it can be an uncomfortable conversation it can be an uncomfortable thing to address and um yeah yeah because it's, it's personal it. because at this point with as many addictions as everyone seems to be falling prey to it's mm -hmm. inevitably personal because you're going to have to, you're going to see that it's a mirror and the third person effect is going to kick in hard. You know, well, I can't believe how many people struggle with this and that, <laughs> right. It's going to yeah. turn into everybody else. Say, I live in a world of weirdos. And, and it's like, well, dude, we're talking you too, you know? And, and just, I think even part of that conversation with people to address it on a personal level and say, I, these are the things I deal with too. Mm -hmm. Right. Not in a way yeah. to boast of it. Like people who, you know, their, their bios are nothing but issues. <laughs> that they that they have they wear them like you know boy scout or girl scout badges and stuff but not that but yeah. saying this is really who i am it's my heart this is things i struggle with these are things that don't define me but things that are part of my life mm -hmm. and here's why i think we have an issue and it's not just me 
Mm-hmm. Why, why I can see myself in you and I can see you in me. Yeah. And that's empathy too, you know, to it's human condition. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, I, I want to, I don't want to keep, I, I could keep. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. But um, I briefly, Tyler, I know that you got some stuff coming out. Can yeah. you talk about that? You got, I don't know if you have dates and give us some titles and stuff. I've seen the covers on you on Twitter and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the the two novellas that I have out right now, Criterium and The Dark Side of the Room, um, I'm going to be reissuing those uh, in late September. And um, I'm really lucky to have, so the new editions, the new edition of Criterium will have a, um, a new companion novella called Enter Softly. And it'll have an introduction by Jeremy Robert Johnson. Uh, so that'll be coming out. And then the dark side of the room will also have a new companion novella and an introduction by Philip Fricasi. Um, and the reason I decided to, to reissue them, um, I was a little like apprehensive about that. I didn't want to appear like <laughs> I'm reissuing the book that's been out for a year. Um, but I, I decided to, I had these ideas for these companion stories. And so I thought, well, I, I want to include them in the book as well. So mm-hmm. that's the the nature of the reissue. And then um, I'll have a, a new book called Almost Ruth coming out. I'm hopeful that it's going to be out in October. It might be early November. Um, uh, and so the two, compan- the two companion novellas and the reissues, those are going to be collected into their own volume along with a prequel story to Almost Ruth. So it'll be kind of a, a mini collection. Okay. So that'll be four four things coming out this year. So the first two reissues along with the mini collection should be out late September. And then the new book, Almost Ruth, will be out October, maybe early November. And then at some point next year, um, I have a short story collection coming from Cemetery Gates Media called Burn the Plans. Um, and that's, we don't have a solid date for that yet, but I'm, I'm excited about that one. It should be fun. And I've read it. And, and you good. and you have read it. Thank yeah. you, Chad. Yeah. Thank you. Well, it was All a right, pleasure, man. Tyler. Oh man, guys, it was, awesome, it was my man. honor. Yeah. Yes. It's a blast hanging out with you guys. Well, Chad, how yes. can people get a? How can people get in touch with us? Uh, well, we don't even have to say it anymore, do we? No, we can just say go, go to the description, description guys. Yeah, Give me we a got, break. We 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 wisen <laughs> up. And yeah. Wisen up and started putting the yeah the, yes, the contact man. info instead of giving you the boring spiel that once people hear me start to say that they probably just shut it off anyway oh my god it's over oh, yeah. achieved some self-awareness and realized <laughs> yeah. there was a better way to do it yeah. yeah it's in the description below so go check it out make sure to reach out to us follow us all that jazz whole bunch of fun and remember we got another show coming out next week it's going to be a blast and uh is it back to us man i think we we have a, a we don't yeah, have a guest or friday the 13th part three and four Oh, yeah, that's right. Week, Friday yeah. the 13th, part three and four. I got to watch them before the day. <laughs> yeah. I can't and do what I did last time and watch it the same time. On Friday yeah. the 13th. Yeah, happy yes. Friday the 13th, by yes. the way. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. Well, yeah. sounds good. Until next time, my friends. All right, man. Yeah. <laughs>